she inhaled. The dim room smelled like sweat. The rough fibers moved rhythmically through her calloused hands as she mended the clothes of her fellow servant. She worked quickly, both, both a product of years of experience and necessity, because it was, it was late morning and she still needed to gather water before midday. And after she finished mending the clothes, she stepped out into the street, which was a mixture of, of, of mud and sewage, and she tripped, having been shoved hard from behind. Out of our way! laughed a couple of merchants as they strolled by in no particular hurry. They were cruel because they could be. Even their children were cruel, having been raised from birth, that, that they were superior. As she muddied, stood up and, and looked around, she thought she heard singing coming from a nearby house. Was this an ecclesia? These, these assemblies, that's where they followed Jesus, just as she had decided to do the day before. She knew few Christians, but she knew their reputation. They were the ones who cared for the shunned, the forgotten, the, the widows, the lepers, the orphans, the poor. There she would be accepted though everywhere else she was treated as filth. There, she would be like them. Dare she go in? She waited in the doorway for a while, thinking about what, what she should do, and she, she heard from within something that she had never, ever heard before. You have value. Not, not because of who you are, but whose you are. And as she, as she entered the room, it was, it was mostly full, their service having already started, but she, she spotted an open seat. She walked, gaining courage. She walked timidly kind of to the front, and, and as their songs of praise washed over her, she felt her nervousness disappear. And their singing ended, the room was quiet, and she could sense all eyes were on her. As she went to take her seat, a man stepped forward to greet her, she supposed. And he said, this seat's reserved. And pointing to his feet, he said, you can sit down there. His words were, were cutting but his, his face was kind as though he didn't realize he was telling her what others showed her every day with their actions, that she had no value. And her face flushed hot. She was embarrassed. She knew she shouldn't have come. Why did she think it would be any different? And, and their irony was not lost on her, a servant who became a daughter of the king, rich in faith, an heir to the kingdom, now again treated as a slave by the very ones who proclaimed all are made in his image. 
And she wondered, maybe they're right. Maybe I am not worthy to sit with them. Maybe this whole thing is a sham. And maybe the Jewish carpenter whom they killed had stayed dead. Breaks my heart to imagine that that a new believer could be treated as inferior by fellow Christians just because of their appearance or, or their social status. And it's not very hard to imagine that this hypocrisy would cause somebody to question whether or not life with Jesus is really any different at all. But this is exactly what was happening in the early church. Though they may not have known they were doing it, just like we may not know it when we do it. But today in the text, we're going to see how that behavior is like murder. How it's like adultery and why favoritism and discrimination reveal a heart opposed to the gospel. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have it so that we can learn more about who you are. Lord, I pray that this time uh, would be a time of hearing from you. That you would be convicting each of us if we need to be convicted not so that we feel guilty, not so that we uh, leave this place feeling bad about ourselves, but that if needed, we can be convicted so that we can repent, so that we can come to you and say, Father, Holy Spirit, transform me, change me into the image bearer of your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm Ryan. I'm on the teaching team here at Hillcrest, and we are continuing our study in James. So go ahead and open up your Bibles, James 2. And uh, we believe the Bible is the very word of God, right? It is, it is how we hear from God. He uses it to convict, to transform. And so we just take the book and we go verse by verse, week by week. And sometimes it's uh, rainbows and unicorns and sometimes it's fire and brimstone. And so uh, whatever it has to say, that's what we're gonna, that's what we're gonna go by. Um, and if you were with us, we started James actually in September. And so now four or five months later, we're in James 2. It's gonna be a long year. Um, but, but, but where we had sort of took a pause in November, right? And we, we moved into kind of a Christmas season. But where we were there is, is James was telling us that our behavior ought to match our beliefs. Right? He said, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And he, he said, don't be hearers of the word only, also be doers. He gave us the example. Uh, somebody who is a hearer only is like someone who looks at a mirror of himself, sees what he looks like, and then immediately forgets it when he goes away. So today we're continuing that, but he's going to go from the general to the very specific So join me, uh, James 2, verse 1. My brothers and sisters, show no partiality 
And whenever, whenever you see that word partiality, you can think favoritism. Some translations use that if it's, if it's a, a better word for you. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay no attention, sorry, if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. Well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So we're going to look at three ways that favoritism reveal a heart opposed to the gospel. And it's coming right there from the text. So the first one, we make distinctions among people. We just saw that in verse four. So let me ask you that. What, what comes to mind when you think or when you hear the phrase radical agenda? Right? It's kind of a loaded term in our culture. Maybe you think politics. Do you think the gospel? Because the gospel is radical. It's unbelievable. And when you, when you, if you think about uh, Roman society at the time, where, where there was no middle class, there was no upward mobility, and 90% of the population was very, very poor. So Dane County, uh, we have like 10% in the, in the poverty line. Here, it's a flip. 90%, very, very poor. And the rich folk, they stuck together. So if you were poor, everybody you knew was poor with no hope of, of changing anything. And, and Thomas Hobbes, 1,500 years later, after 1,500 years of progress, he said this about life. He said, life is poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Just trying to give you a little bit of flavor of what it might have been like for almost everybody. Low social status, looked down upon. And into that enters the gospel. Colossians 3, 11 says, Here there is, not uh, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. In other words, everyone has equal value. Favoritism or, or making distinctions among people, th that's the opposite of the gospel. And if, and if you're here today and, and you are feeling like a less than, or maybe somebody has made you to feel that way, oh, my prayer, don't believe that lie any longer because you have immense value. All right, second way that favoritism reveals a heart opposed to the gospel from the text. Again, verse four, have you not then become judges with evil thoughts? Because as soon as we make distinctions, right? As soon as we say this is different from that, we inevitably begin saying, well, well which is better? Who is better? Who, who is more worthy of, of my time? Who should I spend my time with, give my attention to, give my affections to? We begin judging. Anyone ever been a part of 4-H? 
Come on, hey, loud and proud here. I mean, this is Oregon, right? 4-H, all right. So, um, Aaron, my wife, who didn't, did you raise your hand? Okay, all right, all right, just checking. Um, used to be a poultry judger. And it's, it's, it's fun for me to imagine city girl judging poultry, right? And, and uh, again, to be a judge of something, you need to have a standard to which you are judging. And with poultry, they have something called the standard of perfection, it's this book that, that details everything about different species of, 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 of chickens, right? It's like, you know, how they should walk and how their legs should look and how tall they are and their, their comb. I mean, it is every detail about a chicken. And that's what we judge them by. We say this is ideal. Humans control everything about a chicken's life. We, we control uh, how they're bred, how they're fed. Um, we control, you know, where they live and their slaughter. And we control everything about a chicken's life. But the thing is, that's crazy. Even though we designed the standards for chickens, 99% of the chickens, most of the chickens, come nowhere near what we've decided is the ideal. It's because we've created an ideal for chickens that chickens can't meet. M-E-E-T. <laughs> Just as we've created an ideal for human beauty, that humans can't meet. Just as the Pharisees created uh, rules and ideal for how people should behave, that nobody could meet. And on and on and on and on. Because as soon as we make ourselves judges, we mess it up. And that's why Jesus railed so hard against it. In, in Matthew 7, he said this. He said, you hypocrite, you, you've got a log in your eye, but you're judging the speck of sawdust in your neighbor's eye. And the truth is, we aren't judges. We're ambassadors. And what's an ambassador? What's that word mean? It means representative a representative, and it breaks my heart that we are Christ's representatives if we show discrimination and favoritism. And the third way that favoritism reveals a heart opposed to the gospel is that it causes us to act contrary to God's design. Here's what James says in verse five. Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Think about the audacity of that, right? The God of the universe says, you are my chosen. You are heir to the kingdom. And then we come along and say, eh, to treat you like less than. It's crazy. It's like, it's like um, a, a king, his, his oldest son, the crown prince, future heir to the throne. And he's, he's uh, you know, riding through town on his horse with his entourage. And I don't know what comes to mind for you. For me, it's 
like it's totally Aladdin, right? Like Prince Ali, fabulous he, right? I mean, that's just that's where my mind goes, you know, Disney, whatever. I've got five kids, so it's that's what happens. Um, but just imagine, right? So this prince is riding through town, his entourage, everybody's sort of bowing down. And then somebody stands up and says, Boo! Boo, you're not heir to the throne. You're not, you're not gonna be king. You're garbage. What What's about to happen to that guy? Right? He's about to have a very, very bad day. It, it, it would be crazy for somebody to do that. Yet that's what we do when we discriminate against the one that God has chosen. Okay, so, so he told us, don't discriminate, don't have favoritism, a bunch of reasons why, but... Is it really a big deal? Right? I mean, is it really a big deal? Um, I would say that murder is probably my go-to sin. So David, if, I mean, you know, maybe we need to talk later, but um, I would say that murder is my go-to sin. And, and I don't mean, well, let me explain what I do mean. What I mean is, it's my go-to sin when I want to feel better about myself. When I want to look at my life and feel like, you know, I, I kind of have it all together. I'm not, I'm not doing so bad. I mean, can't you just imagine a teenager saying something like, sheesh, why are you so mad? It's not like I killed somebody, right? I mean, like, like we do that or maybe just me. Okay. We, we do that to feel better about ourselves. And we, because we believe that murder is horrific, but do we believe that partiality, that favoritism, that discrimination, do we believe that those are horrific? Here's what James says as he's trying to convince us. This is verse, continuing in verse nine. But if you show partiality, again, favoritism, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And it's, it's easy to see favoritism, discrimination, partiality. It's easy to see them as pretty minor. And James is saying, my beloved, these are opposed to the gospel. It makes you a lawbreaker, like a murderer, like an adulterer. Now, um, one of my many talents is that I'm pretty creative when it comes to justifying my actions. And I can go jump through lots of like mental gymnastics to figure out why it's okay. And so, so we said it is a big deal, but is it really my deal? Is it your deal? Did you know that you have a blind spot? May feel like a tangent, but we'll come back, I promise. So, so I don't mean like a figurative blind spot. You have a literal blind spot, a spot on your eye where you cannot see. And, and so um, we'll do a little biology lesson. I know somebody's gonna come up to me and be like, well, actually, that's not... Right, okay, so, so that's your eye, uh, back of your eye, retina, 
you have rods and cones, lets you see the colors and the, the shades of gray, right? And then into the back of your eyeball is your boop, optic nerve, right? And that sends information to your brain. And, and right where that plugs into the back of your eye, there's no rods, no cones. You literally, there's a spot in the back of your eye where you can see nothing. So, I mean, to prove it to yourself, we're going we're gonna to be, if you don't mind being a little silly, you can get out your program and one of the pages says notes. I'm serious, you could do this. Um, and then what you're going to do, take a pen if you've got one, and just draw in the center of the page a little dot the size of a, maybe half a P, something like that. And then to the right of that, draw another dot, maybe two inches, two and a half inches to the right. So on your paper, unless you're a note taker, you have uh, two little dots. And what we're gonna do is close your left eye. With your right eye, you're gonna stare at the left dot, okay? So left eye closed, right eye looking at the left dot. Now, very slowly, staring at the left dot with your left eye closed, move the paper away from your face. And when you get to right there, the right dot disappears. Gotta go slow, real slow. And the distance is like, you know, something like this. Um, it's crazy. And your brain, it's not, it's not like you walk around and you, you've got your vision. I mean, norm normally, your left eye covers your right eye's blind spot and your right eye covers your left eye's blind spot and your brain makes it all magic together. But even with your right eye closed or your left eye closed, it's not like you walk around with this giant black spot in your vision. Your brain somehow fills it in. And that's the crazy thing about blind spots as you, you, you can't see your blind spot, right? Even though you are literally staring out your eye. I mean, you're staring out your eye your whole life and there is a sizable portion of your field of vision in front of you where you can see nothing. You can be, go your whole life and be totally unaware of it because you can't see blind spots. So is it my deal? You know, maybe, maybe you nod your head uh, as we're talking about favoritism, talking about discrimination, and um, you think, yeah, 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 I know they're bad, but when I read the text this morning, for this morning, um, it, well, can I be honest with you guys? Do we do that in church? Do we do that ever? Do we, sometimes we do that, right? I'll be, I'll be honest with you guys, right? When I read the text for this morning, I thought, man, there is some really hard parts of scripture. Hard to understand, hard to follow, right? It's places where it says, you know, forgive those who hurt you, bless your enemies. It's like, ugh. But this part, don't show partiality, don't discriminate. It's not really a problem for me. That's what I thought. Right, so just, just add pride to my long list of issues. So do you have that same thought, right? I'm not racist. I don't discriminate against poor or whatever, whatever. 
And I think that the early church thought the same thing. And that's why James spent so much time on this, right? He, he said, hey, don't show partiality. Don't show favoritism. And then he said, let me give you a specific example of what I see you doing. And then he said, let me tell you three reasons that's wrong. And then he said, BTW, I'm comparing that to murder and adultery and you're a lawbreaker. And then he said in verse six, are not, oops, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? It's like he's saying, maybe you don't see yourselves clearly. Like maybe you don't see how crazy it is that, that, you're, that the rich are the ones that are discriminating against you and you are doing that exact same thing to others. He goes on and on and on about uh, giving them examples of favoritism and discrimination. He said, you're copying the very standards of those who are oppressing you. Because James could have, he could have just made it a list, right? Like James 3.16, he could have, he could have just said like, you know, care for the widows and orphans and uh, love your neighbor and uh, call your mama, right? He could have said those things. But instead, he said it over and over and over again because they needed to be shown their blind spot, and we do too, because we have blind spots. If you've been around the church for any uh, period of time, you may be familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba. Um, it's in 2 Samuel 12, and I'm not gonna really spend any time on that story. I'll give you like the 10 second version of that story, which is that King David saw a beautiful woman who was married, and he wanted her for himself, so he had her husband killed. That's a very short version of that story. You can go look it up, 2 Samuel 12. The story after that story is what I want to talk about today. So, so uh, the prophet Nathan comes to David, right? David, David is like, ah, oh, that's cool. I got, I got this wife that I wanted. The prophet Nathan goes to David and says, hey, David, hey, Davy. <clears throat> they were buddies, so I'm sure that's what he said. Let me tell you a story. This is the story that he tells to Davy. Is that going to work for us? Davy? I'm going I'm to try it out and you let me know. Davy. So Nathan, Nathan says, I want to tell you a story. There once were two men. One man was very rich. He had everything that rich people had, including a ton of sheep. Okay? Just a rich guy, rich dude, tons of sheep. The other guy was very poor. He had one sheep. And this poor man loved his sheep. He, he cared for it. He raised it. He fed it. He slept near it. This sheep was very special to him. Now, one day, a traveler comes to the rich man. And the rich man wants to provide a feast for the, his guest. But he doesn't want to kill any of his sheep. So what he does, the rich man does, is he goes and he kills the only sheep of the poor man so that he can make a feast. David hears this story, Davy, hears this story and says, oh, that rich man must die, must die. What does Nathan say to King David? You are that man. David had a blind spot. 
He could see sin in others. He could see sin in that story, but he couldn't see it in himself. And, and, and that ended up costing David dearly, dearly. Go finish the rest of 2 Samuel 12 and you will see what happened to King David. And I wonder how much we're like him, able to see the sin in others, but blind to it ourselves. Now, maybe, maybe kind of as we were talking, uh, you've been uncomfortable, and I'm sorry for those bad jokes, but, but if the Holy Spirit has been working on you just this whole time, you're like, I know right away where I show favoritism or discrimination, right? Maybe that's been you. Or maybe it's a blind spot. How do you feel about people that are different? Different race, different politics, different vaccination status. People that look a certain way. Do you see people in the LGBT movement as exactly the same as you? Loved by God, in need of a savior. What does it look like to not be partial when someone says, call me Leo, not Leah? What does that mean? How do you show, how do you show love like Jesus? Right? And this is not hypothetical. It's not hypothetical because it's happening in our neighborhoods, these conversations, in our schools. It's national news right now. Leah Thomas, a swimmer for Pennsylvania. How do, we, how do we respond? Or maybe, maybe it's something less overt, something closer to home. So Aaron and I got married in 2008, bought a home, had a baby, moved to Oregon, and we were looking for a church. So we came to Hillcrest, and um, you know, our first service, first time there, uh, the baby, Clayton, hi. Um, he needed something, right? And so Aaron just stepped out for just a moment to attend to Clayton and um, then wanted to come back in and somebody stopped her at the door and said, oh, could, you, could you just wait outside? Stay outside. It wasn't all fancy schmancy like a lobby like we have now, right? It was just a chair out there by herself, right? Words cutting, face kind. Oh, that hurt. We didn't ever want to come back, right? Not done on purpose, but still. And then, and then, and then 11, 11 years later, we came back. And we, I, I, it's weird, you remember some days clearly and other days not at all, most days perhaps not at all. And, and we came in uh, through the basement and there's all those white tables that we have in the basement, right? Or whatever we call it, right? All those white tables. And we came in, it was, it was after, sec, after first service. So everybody was gathered around the tables and they were animatedly talking to each other and they were laughing. And we walked in and we knew immediately that y'all are a family. We're like, oh my goodness, they love being around each other. They, they haven't seen each other all week perhaps and they just are enjoying catching up. Y'all are a family. But we were not in that family. We were outside of that family. And as we kind of like walked through, everybody was in their conversation having a great time and we 
we're alone. And I am so thankful that a couple of people came up to us and said, hey, I don't think I've seen you before. What's your name? Let me, let me, let me show you around. Hey, let me introduce you to a couple of my friends. And they invited us to be a part of the family. And I am so thankful that they did that. So let me close with this. 10 ways to show love instead of favoritism. I know you guys don't, I probably don't have any room on your note page because you've been, uh, you did the silly, the silly eyeball experiment. So let's just change it. Instead of doing 10 ways to, sh- not show, to show love instead of favoritism, let's just do one. You guys only need one way anyway. You're like, whew. You want 10. All right, well, see me, see me afterwards. Uh, and the one way to show love instead of favoritism, it's right there in James 2, verse 8. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's really just a call to authentic living where our behavior matches our belief. We, we need to be aware of our blind spots in order to have radical love like Jesus. If the, if the big church and, and the Hillcrest church, if we're not showing radical love, then how are we really representing the gospel? How are we really representing Jesus? We don't want to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, which is why we say often, you know, we're just beggars who found some bread. It's why we talk about mirror living versus window living. Right? The Bible is not a window. You're like, yeah, I know it's not a window. Right? But it's not a window through which we, we look through to judge everyone else as a sinner, though they are. Right? We use the Bible as a mirror to convict us when we're guilty. So that the Holy Spirit can transform our lives to be more like Jesus. So when someone sees the way that we live, they come alongside us and they say, wow, you are showing radical love. Tell me more about this Jesus that you follow. Tell me why your life is so different. Rather than say, hey, sit down by my feet. We can say, Welcome to the family. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And some, sometimes we get a word uh, that is easy to hear. And sometimes we get a word that's hard to hear. And Lord, really, uh, the cry of our heart is just that we would live authentically, that we wouldn't be the man who looks in the mirror and then forgets what he looks like. We don't want to deceive ourselves. Even more than not wanting to deceive ourselves, we don't want to damage your good name. We want to be your ambassadors, living such attractive lives that people can't help but say, oh, tell me what you've got. Tell me why you live that way. 
So Lord, as we go, would you help us to live in authenticity? Amen.